following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are coming back to our series today on the church, the series called Your Church. And we're, we're talking about how the church is not something outside of ourselves. Often, for some reason, that's how we perceive the church. We talk about the church in the third person. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to serve in church. I'm going to give to the church. And we talk about it. Our language is just framed around an understanding of the church, that it exists as a separate entity to me. And so the church should, or the church might, or the church will. But in fact, what we're trying to come back to is a biblical understanding of the church, that it's all of us. We're integrally involved. The church is us. It's not some other group of people. It is those of us who belong to Jesus, and we're all equally, fully, completely uh, immersed in this entity, this living organism called the church. So we're looking at what it means to be a church together uh, and what, it, what life within church community uh, looks like, and we're doing that by working through this chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 12. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, pull it out, and we're, just, we're working through this chapter quite closely. We're doing quite a close reading of Romans 12. Uh, just taking this section by section because it gives a beautiful description of what it means uh, to be a church and what church community can be like. It's not written to a perfect church and I don't think it's written to try and make a church perfect in that sense because as we talked about in the first week, uh, we're waiting for Jesus to return to make the church perfect. Until then, she is a pretty imperfect uh, entity but uh, that's, that's part of it. That's part of being a church is to embrace the messiness of what this is and, uh, and, and make it the best that we can be. So Romans is written to a group of Christians in Rome, in the city of Rome, in the first century. It's written by Paul. He's writing to, to a church or probably a group of churches, a group of house churches as they tended to exist back there. And uh, he's explaining to them what it means to be not only reconciled to Christ, but to be reconciled to each other. In this community of faith. So we're working bit by bit through this chapter, and we've talked about, so far in the series, we've talked about worship. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be a worshiping church, talked about being living sacrifices, that our worship is not just what we do here on Sundays, but also through the week, our commitment to be living sacrifices so that what happens here on Sundays is really the culmination of a life and a lifestyle of worship, that our lives are a song of worship during the week. Uh, we talked about using our gifts, verses 3 to 8, and uh, expressing the way that God's wired us within the church, using the way that He's uniquely made us, our gifts, our skills, our talents, our experiences, our expertise, our abilities to serve other people and to strengthen the church and to express love to one another. And so today we come to a pretty short section in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to take it just chunk by chunk. But this, these next five verses, from verse 9 down to verse 13, they are all on the virtue of love within the church. That's what Paul is talking about, the virtue of love, the, the characteristic virtue of the church. So we're going to spend two weeks in just these five verses because it's that important. The, the virtue of love is that defining for the church, that we're going to spend two weeks just working through what Paul says about love here. Uh, but we'll read all five of these verses today. So if you've got your Bible out or you've got it on your phone or your tablet or whatever, follow along, or if not, it's on the screen there. Uh, let me read these to you. Love must be sincere. 
Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. One of my favorite parts of my job is taking weddings. love taking weddings and being part of that day, you know, when couples are tying the knot, being able to officiate at a wedding ceremony. It's a great privilege. And often what happens, particularly with Christians in weddings, is that they want to have some kind of Bible reading as part of the ceremony. Um, someone will come and read a passage of Scripture. And even non-Christian weddings, this often happens. And uh, the go-to passage, you'd have to say, for weddings, uh, readings at weddings, is 1 Corinthians 13. Right? That is the, you know, the one, love is patient, love is kind, it's not boastful, not proud, and so on. And that, that's the classic, the, the one that everyone pretty much goes to. And, and for good reason. It's a good passage, talks about love, it applies to marriage, not just to marriage, but uh, certainly some, some great descriptive phrases there of what love is all about in the context of marriage. When Anna and I got married, we had a different passage at our wedding. We had this reading from Ecclesiastes, and it's the, it's the one that talks about two are better than one. Um, some of you might be familiar with that, and, and it sort of has a series of phrases about that. Two are better than one. If one falls down, the other one can pick them up, and if one gets cold, the other one can keep them warm, and so on. But we didn't choose a very good translation of that passage, and it gets to the end, and the last phrase in that passage is a strand of three chords is not easily broken. But in the translation we chose, it said something like, it said something like, two are good, three are even better. And it was like this sort of nervous laughter went through the congregation <laughs> at that point. Um, as people are like, really? At a wedding? Do you, you, is, that, is that really appropriate? So check the translation is what I would say to you, young people getting married. Check the translation. Uh, by the way, we have a couple that's just recently got engaged. Are Rochelle and Andy here by any chance? Today, Rochelle Spicer and Andy just got engaged, and so congratulations to them. Just thought I'd throw that in while we're talking about weddings. Anyway, to bring all this back to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of the classic weddings passage, but I want to argue that this passage in Romans 12 should be put up alongside 1 Corinthians 13 as the other great passage on love in the Bible. Uh, you barely ever hear it, this one. I've never heard it at a wedding, that's for sure, and Probably for good reason, because some of these phrases would sound a little bit strange at a wedding, such as, be patient in affliction. Maybe that's appropriate at a wedding, I don't know. But uh, you don't tend to hear this at weddings, because it really is couched in the language of a church community. And it's very much describing uh, love in the context of a church. But it is uh, every bit as, as exalted as 1 Corinthians 13, every bit as rich and deep and loaded and powerful as the famous love chapter is. And in fact, Paul writes this little section the same way that he writes 1 Corinthians 13. In both cases, what he does is he takes the virtue of love and he describes it with a string of short fire phrases. So it's just these short, sharp, snappy phrases, one after the other, just layer upon layer to describe the virtue of love in the Christian community. And these phrases, uh, in and of themselves, aren't always that connected to each other. And so Today and next week, the sermon is going to go in a few different directions because 
each phrase is kind of bringing out a different dimension of what love is all about. But the point is, this is like a string of pearls, and the, the string that holds them all together is love, this primary virtue within the Christian community. Now, when we see the word love, right there at the beginning of verse 9, uh, we are looking at a word that is very, very familiar to us. It's just part of our vocabulary. It's part of our culture. We say it all the time. You've probably said it today already, maybe, to someone about something, have you? The word love, it just you know, it rolls off our tongue. We see it written down all the time. It's part of our cultural vocabulary. But it's important to note that this was not so for the people Paul was writing to. The word for love that he uses is the word agape. Now, many of you have heard that word because it's the most popular and important word for love in the Bible. But outside of the Bible, this was not a common word at all. The Greeks had other words for love, a number of them, that they used much more frequently, much more commonly to describe different types of love. And Paul uses some of those words here too. But when he comes to describing the primary virtue of the Christian community. In fact, when he comes to describe God's own love for us, he doesn't go to any of the everyday words for love in his vocabulary. He doesn't go to the words that his culture was using for love. Instead, he plucks a word out of relative obscurity and employs it in the service of the gospel. And that word is agape. That was the most rare word. It was, it was, it was the least common word for love in the Greek language. It was, it was used very little. There's very few inscriptions with that word on it that have been dug up by archaeologists before the New Testament period. And when it was used, when agape was used, it tends to be a pretty colorless sort of word, a pretty bland kind of word. It doesn't have a lot of substance and meaning to it. It's often used just interchangeably with the other words for love. It doesn't seem to really pack a lot of punch itself. But here is Paul masterfully taking this word out of obscurity and using it to define the chief characteristic of the church. And he's able then to load it up with, with a lot of fresh meaning because of the gospel. And he uses agape not only to describe our love for one another, but to describe God's love for us. Because at the heart of it, what agape means is self-giving love. It's, I think, the simplest way. You can define it many ways, but at the heart of it, self-giving love. Agape is a form of love that is willing to sacrifice my interests, sacrifice my feelings, sacrifice my desires and needs and wants and, and so on, sacrifice whether or not anything is going to be reciprocated, sacrifice whether or not this is deserved, whether or not this is going to be taken advantage of, whatever. Agape puts all that aside and simply sacrificially and unconditionally moves towards the other with kindness, with tenderness, with generosity, with benevolence. That's agape. And it perfectly describes what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Up to this point in Romans, Paul has only used agape to describe God's love for us in Jesus. This is the first time he uses it for relationships within the church community. 
But he's used it to talk about how Jesus has shown this agape to us. He does this in other places, that Jesus has, has shown the self-giving love to us. That he didn't stand on his own interests, didn't stand on his own entitlements and his own sense of right, but he gave himself freely for us. He get, we didn't deserve it. There's nothing in us that was worthy of it, but he gave himself up for us. And now, says Paul, that kind of agape, that's not just what Jesus did for you. That becomes the pattern now for life within the Christian community. That becomes the pattern, that same kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-lowering, self-emptying love. That becomes, should become, the pattern of relationships within the Christian church. The self-sacrificing love. It's a huge demand. And I think with agape, the first thing to do is accept that we're never going to meet it. We can't possibly clear that bar. We can't possibly live up to that kind of standard. I think the first step is to be incredibly grateful for the fact that God's shown that agape to us and, and receive it and, and soak ourselves in His grace. But then out of that, genuinely seek to show this kind of love to one another. And here's the first thing Paul says about Agape in verse 9. And verse 9 here is sort of like a banner heading over this section, over verses 9 to 13. Uh, this, is the, this is the overall banner. He says, love must be sincere. Literally, and if I think if you've got the King James Version, it might say this, let love be without hypocrisy. It literally means let love be unhypocritical. Now, we stumble over this, I think, because... When we come to the text, we bring all of our own cultural associations of what love is and what love means. But we tend to have a view of love, a version of love that is extremely emotionally driven. We think about love in terms of our feelings. You know, it's, it's I love something if I desire it, if I'm attached to it, if I have strong feelings for it, if I'm really devoted to it. That's love. It's almost always kind of the engine of love in our contemporary culture is something that I desire, something that I really feel strongly towards and want to have for myself. But that, in fact, is the opposite of agape. And we've got to be so conscious of this when we come. Because if we just bring all of that into the text, and we assume that's what love means, we will be on the other side of the fence from what Paul's talking about. Agape says, I'm going to put aside my feelings for the purpose of loving. See, we say, I will love if I feel like loving. Love is kind of driven by this emotional attachment. Agape says, no, I'm going to disregard how I feel about you in order to genuinely show kindness to you. You see the difference? It's the opposite. So when we hear love must be sincere, we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, if it's going to be sincere, if I'm going to sincerely love someone, then really I've got to feel like loving them. I should feel like this. And if I don't feel like loving you, if I don't feel like being kind to you, then I shouldn't. Because if I did, it would be fake. You know how we, how we think this way? You know, if I, if, I, if I did something nice to you, but I didn't really feel like it, wouldn't that be hypocritical? Wouldn't that be insincere but that's not what Paul's talking about that's not sincerity at all sincerity is not about love lining up with our feelings sincerity is simply loving for the right reasons loving out of the right deep motivations so let me give you an example of this uh, and I can talk about him today because he's not here Brian McStay in our church community here uh, many Sundays after I've preached, Brian will show me this kindness of going and getting a cup of coffee. 
for me and brings it to me over here on the prayer chairs. Just a, just a gesture of love, just a gesture of kindness. And he'd probably hate me talking about this, so don't tell him that we had this conversation. But Because um, he doesn't do it for the attention or anything like that. He just does it. He's, he's a loving man. So he, he, he brings me this cup of coffee. Now let's just imagine that one Sunday, Brian thinks to himself after church, that was a shocker of a sermon. I hated that whole church service. The last thing I feel like doing today is taking a cup of coffee to Reuben. He doesn't deserve it. He's never brought me a cup of coffee in my life, which is true. <laughs> so, so he just feels like, I don't want to do this today. This is so far from what I feel like doing. Now, here's the question. Should he, for that reason then, not bring me the cup of coffee? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I still need coffee. <laughs> Man shall not live by bread alone. But it's not about that. What the, the question, it, does it depend on his feelings? See, agape would say that's irrelevant. Agape would say it doesn't matter whether you feel like it or you don't feel like it. Agape, in fact, requires you to set aside any feeling of whether I want to, whether it's deserved, whatever, whether it's reciprocated. Agape says, I'm going to do this anyway. But let's imagine now that Brian went and got me a cup of coffee so that... When he gave me the cup of coffee, others would see him doing this and think that he was a really pious and holy person. Now, he'd never do it for those reasons. Okay, I'm just make, purely making a point. He's a very humble man. But let's say that he got me a cup of coffee to be seen by other people or so it would look like it was very charitable. In other words, it was quite a self-serving thing. That is what Paul is talking about when he says love must be sincere. That would be insincere. Why? Because he's doing it out of a self-serving motivation or if he gave me a cup of coffee so that I would refer clients to him or something like that if it's a self-serving thing then it's insincere but that's that's a different thing to whether or not we feel like it do you understand what I mean is that distinction clear that that love to be sincere needs to come from the right motivation needs to be done from the right reason not self-seeking not self-glorifying not so I'll get something in return that's to be sincere. But that's a different thing from whether or not I happen to feel like doing it in the moment. I may completely not feel like showing any kindness to you, and yet if it's the right thing to do, and I do it as an expression of love because God calls me to do that, that's still sincere, even if I don't feel like it. Because love comes from our will, not from our feelings. It is not a visceral response to the situation. It is a commitment of our will to put the interests and the needs of others ahead of ourselves. That's how love works. So, let me just put this as bluntly as I can. In order to love each other, we don't even need to like each other. You know, no, I do like you. I hope that you like me. But the point of a guy, I just think this, it's so different to our culture, we've got to understand this, because we're so on the emotional track when it comes to love. And we're so sort of feel like, well, if, I, if I'm going to show you love, I better like you. No, agape, that doesn't even matter. It is not even about liking. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about this. I don't have this written down. Would you mind putting this on the screen? Uh, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Here we are. He says in Mere Christianity, Though natural likings should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable or loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. It's quite good, isn't it? 
In other words, don't worry about, do I really feel like loving this person? And would it be fake if I didn't? I think when it comes to agape, there is a certain degree of fake it till you make it. Just honestly, you may not feel like it. But Lewis goes on to say, what better way to generate affectionate feelings than to show agape, than to show love? That as we do serve each other, more often than not, the feelings will follow, but they don't drive it. They don't lead it. They, don't, they shouldn't determine whether or not you show love, but you'll find over time, if you choose to love, you choose to serve, you choose to show kindness, you may just end up liking the person anyway. But don't sit around trying to conjure up the feelings first. Let them follow. Let your emotions catch up later. Okay, I wanted to set the scene with that because I think we, we, we are so in danger of coming off track with, uh, with our cultural versions of love and we need to really steep ourselves in this Biblical understanding of agape as self-giving love. So, I want to look at three of these phrases that Paul uses here to describe love uh, in verse 10 and 11, and then next week we'll look at verse 12 and 13, but just three short phrases here. The first is in verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in love. Now, he uses, you, you can't quite tell it there from the translation, but he uses two other words in Greek for love here. He throws them in. He uses phileo, which is family love or brotherly love, and he uses storge, which is affectionate love between friends. So he uses these two words that are much more common in Greek than agape was. And part of what he's saying, I think, is agape can hold these other forms of love within itself. If you have agape in place, if you've got a commitment to self-giving love, it can, it can handle these various other forms of love and it'll, it'll express itself in many different ways. So, so Paul here is saying to be devoted to one another means that as a church community, we treat each other like good friends. We treat each other as family should. We treat each other as a family. And that's quite close to home for some of you in a very real sense because you've immigrated to New Zealand. And in a lot of ways, you have been looking and searching for a new family. I was talking to someone in our church community about this the other day, immigrated from South Africa, and he said, you know, you leave family, you leave many family behind, don't you? You, you become dislocated from many, at least in your extended family, and you come into a church community very much looking for a new family, very much needing that, that family around you to provide, perhaps, what family would have provided otherwise. And one of the great ways in which this expresses itself in our church community, and it's happened a few times, is that we have young South African families come into the church, and we've had a South African couple that's maybe a generation or two older than them that have come alongside them, and particularly come alongside their children, and been like pseudo-grandparents to them. When the grandparents are back in SA, but you've got young family here, and just others, and it's not, it's not been part of any organized program to date, but just people taking initiative, and, and, and a couple saying, here's a family, and I could, I could play a role, and I could be a kind of grandfather, grandmother figure in this child's life and be involved and love them. And that's fantastic. I mean, there's a great picture of the church being the church, right? That's, that's family. That's love. That's that kind of brotherly love. That's phileo. Family love within the church. I want to suggest one way in which we can practice this in a very concrete, very simple way, and it's through the ministry of presence. Being devoted to one another through the ministry of personal presence. We live in a culture that craves community. People want community. They want connection and belonging as much as they ever have, and yet, you'd have to say, people are pursuing community in ways that are more and more detached from one another, more and more disconnected from one another. 
So social media, texting, email, internet. We're, we're, we're trying to connect with each other. We've got this innate human desire to connect with each other, but we're doing it in ways that actually can distance and actually become more about image management than they do about genuine, vulnerable, reciprocal relationship. And to me, without giving up, I'm not saying Facebook is evil. I'm not saying, you know, close down your Twitter account. I think these things can all be redeemed. But I think this is a moment, I really believe this is a moment historically for the church to step in and say, we have something to offer here, and it's the ministry of personal presence. Because our culture has forgotten how to be personally present with one another in a meaningful way. And here we are, this is at the heart of what it means to be agape, to be loving towards one another, is to show up and to actually be together and to be present with one another and to simply enjoy each other's company. This is something we've got to give to the world. I think they've forgotten this virtue of simple personal presence. So can we commit together as a church community to being present with one another? Partly that's around these services, after the service, tea and coffee, sausage sizzle, whatever it is. But it means that when you're connecting with people, be intentional about being personally present. Maybe instead of just sending the text or instead of just sending the email, see if you can get, have a coffee with someone. And maybe not just someone that you already know. Maybe not just someone that you're already friends with and you've already got an established relationship with, but someone you don't know that well. Could you look them up for coffee? Could you be personally present? Could you be with them with no other agenda than simply to get to know them, hear a bit of their story, and just enjoy one another's presence as brothers and sisters in Christ? It really shouldn't be that revolutionary, but it's become revolutionary in a culture of social isolation. And we need to come back to this value, I think, to truly demonstrate agape. And when you are present with that person, when you're having the coffee with them, don't look at your phone every five seconds. You know, I mean, we know, right, how easy it is to be physically present with someone and yet not personally present. You know, it's the old picture of, of a group of teenagers. You know, they're physically in the same place, but they're all on their phones. They're all communicating with someone or something beyond themselves. So the idea, the value of being in one place at one time with one person is virtually unbearable for us these days. This is something to reclaim as a church. This is a gift to our culture, I think. I think people are hungry for it when they finally find it. But would we commit ourselves to being personally present and then fully present, in other words, attentive to the other person when you're in conversation? Just practice that this week when you have conversations with people in the church and outside of the church to be fully present to them to be fully engaged in what they are, not looking beyond them, not looking down at your phone, but fully present with that person. It takes practice. But I think the ministry of presence is a gift we can give, and it's a, a wonderful way of demonstrating agape, a willingness to sacrifice whatever else I may be doing in this moment, whatever else I want to check on my phone, simply to be present with you. Because I believe in the power of my presence in this situation. I'm not just talking about my presence but we believe in the power of our personal presence with one another as a gift to each other in Christ. So, the ministry of presence. And then Paul gives us a second one. And at the end of verse 10, he says, Honor one another above yourselves. Now, what he does here is genius. Uh, honor was such a big deal in the Roman world. And the culture that Paul's living in, the culture these Christians are writing in, living in, it was all about 
honor. People would constantly be seeking greater honor for themselves over another person, always in social interactions, in any kind of competitive environment. You're always seeking to gain honor, maybe to shame the other person a little bit by being perhaps a little bit more eloquent in your speaking, by being a little bit more learned in your philosophy, by being a little bit more competent in athletics, by being, having greater prowess in politics. Whatever it was, you're always seeking to gain honor, gain honor, gain honor, a little bit more status, a little bit more position, a little bit more recognition over the other person. You're always trying to outdo and elbow out everyone else. So what Paul does here is absolutely genius. He uses a Greek word here, prongumenoi, and it's, it's translated above yourselves. And what it really means is outdo each other. It's exactly the kind of thing that people were doing in the Greco-Roman culture, trying to outdo each other all the time. And Paul uses that word and he says, yeah, you should. You should try and outdo each other. You should be outdoing each other all the time, but you should outdo each other in giving honor, not in gaining honor. He's flipped the entire system of honor and shame within the Roman world on its head with that one phrase. And it's almost this comical picture of like we're trying to elbow past each other in giving honor. We're trying to outdo each other, but it's in giving honor. It's in esteeming the other person rather than trying to rob them of honor, rather than trying to push myself and elevate myself above them. We should, if anything, outdo one another in trying to honor each other above ourselves. And let me just give you one practical way. There's many ways to honor each other within a church, many examples that you could give, but let me just give you one. It's the ministry of encouragement. I think one of the greatest ways that we can honor each other in a church is by encouraging each other and by speaking kind words to each other. Our culture is so starved of encouragement. Most of the words, you think of most of the words that pass your lips on a day-to-day basis, they are either purely functional words about the task at hand, or they are negative words, tearing something down, criticizing, poking holes, whatever it is. Here we are as a church, and the gift of agape to give the world, I think, comes through the ministry of encouragement, that we can speak well, particularly speak well of each other. Could we be a community that commits that the words we speak to and about each other are going to be encouraging words. That when you're in a conversation with someone, maybe today, when you're sharing a sausage and bread and you're in a conversation, when you see something in someone else that could be encouraged, take the opportunity. I know it feels a bit awkward. It's a bit socially weird because we'd rather just talk about generic stuff that's going on. But when someone's done something well, when someone's, you know, there's, a, there's something you can encourage there, name it and speak it and say it. Hey, great job. Well done. I see this in you. This is awesome. You did so well on that. This was fantastic. Speak that. You'll be amazed how far it goes because you and I know how much it means when we get it, don't we? You know how much it means when those encouraging words are spoken over your life. When's the last time someone encouraged you? Man, that goes in deep. That's that soothing balm on the soul. And so be the person who speaks those words to one another and actually names the things in someone else's life and experience that really can be encouraged. And they're there if you look for them. And here's the flip side of the ministry of encouragement. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the ministry of holding one's tongue. And he says, a lot of what occurs to you about other people in the church should never be spoken. (laughs) In other words, a lot of what you think about each other 
really shouldn't be said, probably. We probably shouldn't even think it. But he's saying, when there, are, when there is negativity, and maybe you're feeling a certain way towards another person, or someone annoys you, or you've got something to gripe about, just don't say it. Just don't say it. It is amazing how free people feel to criticize one another. And in a Kiwi culture, all we do is we do it in a passive-aggressive way outside of the other person's earshot, as if that somehow justifies it. And we will tear people down, won't we? And we'll whinge and we'll gripe about them and we'll justify it because, well, they deserve it or whatever, whatever. And we'll come up with all kinds of reasons. Brothers and sisters, this should not be so among us. This should not be happening in our church community. We need to commit ourselves that if you have a genuine grievance against another person, what do you do? You go to that person. And if someone else comes to you and they start having a whinge and they start having a gripe and they start complaining, what do you do? You say, you, you need to go and speak to that person. Or let me come with you and we'll go together to that person. And if you're not willing to do that, then you have no right to be negative. You just don't. Biblically, couldn't be clearer. Read James, read Matthew 18, read it here in Romans 12. We should be people of edifying speech towards one another. That should be the nature of the church. And I think it comes up time and time again in the New Testament because the authors knew how toxic negative words are and how much they fester and create factions and they, they tear churches apart from the inside out. We've got to be a people who are committed to speaking encouraging words and holding our tongue when it comes to something negative. Can we covenant together that as a community, we're not going to speak negatively about another person especially when they are not present. And that if we have something against our brother or sister, we'll go to them and we'll deal with it and we'll be grown-ups about it and we'll have a face-to-face -face conversation. That's what the church should be. That's what it means to practice agape. I sacrifice my insatiable desire to gripe and whinge about other people. I lay it down and instead commit myself to the ministry of encouragement. Okay, here endeth the lecture. Let's move on, something a little more positive to finish with here. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. This is just a great phrase. Those two words, spiritual fervor, you know what they are literally in Greek? A burning spirit. Paul says, with burning spirit, with your spirit burning, serve the Lord. And it's a bit hard to know what that means. What does it mean to have a burning spirit? But we're certainly helped by the fact that there is a guy in Scripture who is described as having a burning spirit. His name's Apollos. We read this in Acts 18, verse 25. He, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. That's those two words again, a burning spirit. He spoke with a burning spirit and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So here's Apollos, and he seems like he's got a teaching gift. And he loves teaching, even though he, he's not fully educated in the way of Jesus. There's some big gaps in his knowledge base, and he's going to require Priscilla and Aquila to come alongside him and teach him the way of the Lord. But he's still out there talking to people about Jesus, and he's doing it with a burning spirit. I think perhaps the best way to translate that here and in Romans 12 is spiritual passion. He spoke with spiritual passion. He used his gifts with spiritual passion. We're called to serve the Lord with spiritual passion. Now, 
We've got to be careful here because this can easily drift right back to emotionalism, can't it? We've just done all this talking about how it's not about emotions and it's not about our feelings. So then what is spiritual passion? It's something deeper than your emotions. It's something much deeper than the superficiality of how you feel in a given moment. Spiritual passion is just that. It's given by the Spirit. It's a gift of the Spirit. And paradoxically, you know where it comes from? Is from time spent alone with God, soaking yourself in His love for you. I think the best shot that we've got of genuinely expressing agape to one another is when it comes out of our own time with the Lord and we're really steeped in His great love for us in Jesus. That's the engine that drives agape. Because when you spend time with God and you soak yourself in the Scriptures that speak to you of the immeasurable, extravagant, lavish love of God poured out upon you by the mercy and the sheer pleasure of God, that creates a stirring in your spirit deeply, more deeply than your emotions. That creates a rumbling and a stirring deep in your soul that becomes an engine that enables you to genuinely, sincerely show agape to other people. Still doesn't mean you're always going to feel like it. Still doesn't mean it's not going to be hard a lot of the time to practice agape. But the Spirit is our helper here. The Holy Spirit is our guide and our strength and our helper. And He will do this by leading us into the great agape of God. And He will do this by creating a deep bubbling within our soul. The great love of the Father that creates a spiritual passion. You don't have to be an outwardly emotional person to have spiritual passion. I'm not a really outwardly emotional person most of the time. I'm not a really outwardly excitable person. Anna said to me the other day, the last time I saw you excited was after the Coldplay concert several years ago. It's probably true. It was an exciting concert. But I'm not, I'm not sort of, don't wear my heart on my sleeve, not often outwardly excitable or emotional, but that doesn't mean that I can't have a spiritual passion. The deep ocean current of a burning spirit runs much deeper than the superficial waves of our emotions. And I think if we, if we want that burning spirit, the first thing is simply to ask for it. Simply to ask the Lord, give me a burning spirit that I could serve you with spiritual fervor, with zeal, not being lazy, but serving the Lord and serving your people, serving all people that come across my path. So I would ask you, do you have a burning spirit? However you think about it, however you want to define it, do you have a burning spirit? Maybe for some of you, you had. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's a memory now. Something maybe earlier in your Christian life, you had this zeal, you had this burning, deep spiritual passion, but for whatever reason, over time, it's just faded now, and you could best describe yourself now as just having spiritual lethargy, spiritual apathy, spiritual mediocrity. And I want to encourage you, maybe today the greatest application for you from this text before you run out there and try and start doing all these things to love each other is simply come back and ask God, Father, give me a burning spirit again. Burning spirit to, that, no, that burns because I know I'm loved, primarily. A spirit that burns with the knowledge that I'm loved and I'm chosen and I'm called and I'm precious. And then the spiritual passion to serve one another. For some of you, you need to just be alone with God in a way that, just asks him, God, give me a renewed spiritual passion, a burning spirit again, like I once had, to return to your first love, to allow God to stoke the fire again that's maybe gone cold. 
For some of you, maybe God's laying on your heart a particular way in which he's calling you to express agape. And because it's a subject that's so broad and so extensive and connects in so many ways, I just want to distill it down by asking you to think, what is, what is one step that God may be placing on your heart? Well, perhaps a better way, what, who is one person that God may be calling you to show agape to? How is God calling you to practically express agape love, that unique form of Christian love to one another in this church or perhaps someone outside the church. Think about it another way. What needs to die in you in order for agape to live? What selfishness needs to die in you in order for agape to come forth? What self-interest needs to be brought to the cross and laid down and confessed in order for agape to really rise up within you and be expressed in your life. Maybe God's putting his finger on something and saying, I I want you to be a vessel of agape, but you can't do that while there's this deep, selfish streak that still runs through your heart. We've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with that first. Maybe God's saying, I don't want you to run out there and be a loving person until you understand deeply my love for you. And maybe God is saying there is something. There's a ministry of presence There's a ministry of encouragement that I want you to take up towards a certain person to be with them, to encourage them, or to hold your tongue, or whatever it is. And he's setting in front of you something that requires action from you. Don't shove that away. Don't ignore that voice. God's speaking, and he's stirring our hearts, and he's calling us to be a loving community. May we be people of love who genuinely are apprehended by the great love of God. And may we be people whose lives are marked by agape and a church community that's characterized by agape love toward one another. Let's pray as we head into communion. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. We've heard your word, Lord. We've heard this call to love, but I'm I'm conscious of how easily that can become just a platitude and it can become another cliche that goes in one ear and out the other. And love is just such common currency. But God, I pray you just break through all of that, break through all of our clutter, break through all of our preconceptions and show us, God, what it means to love. And show us, Father God, the depth of your love for us. And I thank you that we see it in Jesus, that you've already shown us, that you've given us Jesus. And that if we truly want to know what love is and what agape looks like, we need only look at the cross where we see the absolute filth of our sin met by your extravagant love, undeserved, unmerited, and unearned. Lord, what can we say in view of that but thank you and give us strength and courage to love one another that our love for each other here may be in some way some reflection of your great love for us. In Jesus' name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. 
Thank you for listening.